This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Well, I think when you read, for instance, the Old Testament, you hear a lot about individuals who do bad things. Uh, you hear a lot about individuals, particularly who have power, for instance, committing acts of injustice. So particularly with the king, for instance, you might hear about kings who perpetuate injustice. In 1 Samuel 8, the people ask for a king. Um, this upsets the prophet Samuel and the Lord. Um, and Samuel explains to them uh, the justice of the king who will rule over them, the judgment, the, the sort of way. And he, he's got this famous text where he says, the king's going to take your sons and daughters and use them for his military. He's going to set some of them as commanders of troops. He's going to take your daughters and make them work in his complex, you know, his bakeries and perfumeries. He's going to take your fields and your vineyards. He's going to, you know, exploit you through taxes and tribute and you're going to end up his slaves, you know? And so you've got this depiction of like this king who is acting unjustly in a predatory way. But if you think about that a little bit longer, you quickly realize there's no way that that like an oppressive king can do all those things by himself. Mm -hmm. He's not going to actually be going, you know, house to house and collecting tribute. He's going to have people who are out there collecting tribute. He's not going to be the only one supervising your daughter's in their baking and your sons when they have to do forced labor to build this stuff. There's going to be a whole state apparatus, you know, that this unjust king is going to work through. And in the for those people living in that state apparatus, they're not all going to be like sitting around thinking like, ooh, how do I oppress my neighbor today? Like they're going to just be right. trying to survive and there's going to be um, as one scholar put it, smooth pathways <laughs> to certain forms of injustice uh, and 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 very difficult paths to practicing uh, justice and neighbor love, you know. And Ecclesiastes actually says this explicitly, you know. If Ecclesiastes five eight, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. Mm. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So the author of Ecclesiastes is saying when injustice kind of gets in the weeds, in the system, it involves individuals like kings, and but it also is greater than the sum of its parts because many, many people become kind of caught up in it. Yeah, it's shocking, too, that that warning about the future king, A, is not about Saul, the king that actually would come. It seems to be about David and, and Solomon mm. even more so. Mm. Um, but also, all of that directly violates Deuteronomy 17. Uh, yes. You know, in the days to come, uh, I will appoint a king. And so this, I, this, I love that passage because it says he will take and he will give to his, you know, he will yes. take and he will give, he will take and he will give. Um, so all of that is directly just going against uh the prescription for how a future king should act. Yes. Um, but I guess some people would say like, oh, but the state is just a bunch of individual people sinning, you know, like, so is, um, is a bad state an oppressive state or just a normal state that's being dysfunctional. 
Um, isn't it just, you know, a hundred people in offices as individual centers making unethical choices? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a couple ways to answer that question. My own view is that overall scripture and our experience suggests that when a bunch of individual sinners get together, our sin, our, our culture of sin and injustice is more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is where you get reference in the prophets were like, oh, the whole the whole body is sick. You know, Jeremiah mm-hmm. at one point sees people acting poorly. He's like, maybe this is just the undereducated people. So he runs there. No, it's everybody, you know. And I think you get this sense that that sin is is in the water, like it's in the air. Um, that that there's a sense in which our our communities, our cultures, um, can either be uh, bringing forth goodness and flourishing in peace, or sort of holistically moving us in in more negative directions. And and um, I think we all kind of get this at one level intuitively. Like it's hard to look at kids and say healthy families don't contribute as a family system to the well-being of individuals like the culture of a family it's pretty obvious right that that's gonna lead to on the whole better outcomes for a kid if the family system is flourishing that individual kid may actually rebel against that make terrible decisions that have nothing to do with the family culture but by and large we know it's a blessing you know uh, to have parents and fa- extended family who, who are are living in God honoring ways, and the reverse is also pretty obvious. And there's no reason to think that that larger units of society are different, right? Um, we create cultures, you know, and and they contribute to the way that we emerge and live and exist as people. So if we get if we came up in a house where we can imagine that one parent can be a sinner in a particular way and another parent can sin in a different way, mm. but together, together they can create sins um, or commit sins that they wouldn't have done if they yeah. weren't doing them together. Yeah. Then multiply that times a uh, hundred in a corporation or a thousand in a government. We shouldn't expect that to get miraculously better. Yes. And I think that, the positive side of this is that human beings were created to be mediators of God's blessing to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Robbie Holt, my mentor, Robbie Holt, who co-authored Practicing the King's mm-hmm. Economy with me. Fantastic one book. Who, thank you. <laughs> is the one who helped me with this the most. I think you know we are created to be mediators of God's blessing to others. And you see this right in Genesis, right? The, the command is to fill the earth mediating of blessing to offspring and to rule the earth in ways that um, tend to the goodness of creation itself, you know, guard and keep the garden of Eden. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense in which um, we are meant to be, we are, we are designed to be the sorts of beings capable of being conduits or mediators of God's goodness to others, right? That's hardwired into us. And I love, you know, the way some scholars are drawing on fields outside of scripture, mm-hmm. like this, the neuroscience and, and whatever to say, look, we can actually see this. Human beings are hardwired to connect to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Susan Eastman 
in the New Testament and Andrew Pensant working in um, uh, th- systematic theology have both drawn on the science of imitation and like this idea that babies start imitating their parents' facial expressions within hours of birth. Mm-hmm. And this hardwiring for imitation is actually how we become who we are. Like we literally are becoming the people that we are in these mediated person-to-person relationships. And so we're created for this beautiful thing. You can be a mediator blessing. But what that means is when humans turn from God's way toward another way, the structure of creation doesn't change. We're still designed to be the sorts of beings who mediate. We just now mediate brokenness and curses. And you see that at a systemic level in the Genesis story, as you know, Drew, right? Like, there's the, the, the story that we call the fall, right? But then there's the fallout. There's the avalanche of sin where things get worse and worse and worse. And if you're looking for an example of kind of like systemic, you know, cultural widespread corruption, uh, you know, Genesis 6, 11 talks about how the earth was ruined right. before God and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was ruined because all flesh had ruined its way on the earth. Mm. So there you have like a system, a structure, a culture of violence that includes not only humans, but animal life and ecological flourishing. And in that culture of sin, every human being is also individually a sinner. Yeah. So you get both the structural and the systemic and the individual right there in the flood story. Um and so I think that this idea that there are structures of sin, there are systems of brokenness, is is kind of everywhere hidden, uh, everywhere under the surface of the text, and occasionally comes to the surface mm. in texts like that. Um, I don't do sports, so I shouldn't use sports <laughs> analogies, but I do understand some basic concepts of sports. And I, I think uh, I usually say, you know, when it comes to the ethics of Scripture, uh, we're playing soccer, not tennis, mm. uh, in the sense that. Again, you know, a good football soccer team does require each individual player to participate in this particular way and mimic mm. the players and, you know, and um, do their best, do their work. But the sum becomes something better than any individual yes. can do, right? There's nothing they can do on their own. And, um, man, that is a really hard, that's easy to say, but it's really difficult, I think, for modern, especially Western Christians to get mm. their mind around the fact that actually, the goal is not for me to become a better person. The goal is to mm. have a, live in a flourishing community. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You've written yeah, a little it, bit about this. <laughs> you have well, a book coming just, out on this, right? That, it's, it's fascinating that you, you put it that way. I mean, there's two things I would say. One is it just gives me flashbacks to when I was at Covenant College and studying uh, community development. And we we're, we're doing a course on culture hmm. uh, in different cultures. And our lecturer had this, uh, Steve Corbett had this spectrum you know, uh, where cultures, you could plot cultures roughly in terms of their emphasis on sort of an individual perspective Mm -hmm. versus more collectivist perspective. And the thing to say is just that the U.S. is off the charts in crystals of the world today towards that individualistic perspective. So if we have a hard time not seeing just that in scripture, that may be because we are hyper-individualist in every area of our our lives. And, And I'm not saying that that's all ubiquitously negative. I think in its own world, the Bible probably um, emphasized the individual more in right. some cases right. than its collectivist 
ancient Near Eastern background, right? Um, there's some surprising sort of individual emphases in the Texas world, but in our world, we are the weirdos, you yeah, know? No. <laughs> so the idea that you'd have to explain to an Israelite reader back then, or say um, a Maori indigenous reader in New Zealand, where I am now, or a uh, Maasai reader in Kenya, where I, I used to live, uh, that the Bible understands systems and structures, they, they would just like be like, yeah, duh. You know, this yeah. is obvious. Um, uh, so yes. Um, but, I, I, but the other thing, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I want to say, I think the U.S. is off the charts in individualism, but we also have this English problem that so in other languages, even romance languages, they can see for themselves the uh, second person plurals uh, mm. littered throughout the scripture. So when Paul is, you know, some of what people consider their life verses are actually y'all have been called. Right? Yes, um, <laughs> I, I have said this before in class. I think the most transformative English version that has yet to be written. Right. Like, you know, in the Bible, somebody has country, done it. Is the Southern International version? Yeah. If you just y'all, or or, or or sometimes in in New Zealand you say use, yeah, or right. use guys, we just gotta find a way yeah, yeah. <laughs> of getting these second person plurals. Um, and it's interesting in texts like Deuteronomy where you get this hyper fixation on the culture, hmm. right? How are you gonna remember? You all have to work together. Uh, you have to come together as an entire society for these rituals, these big feast rituals, but also you and your household, when you sit up, when you lie down, when you're on the road, when you're everywhere, you have to be constantly talking about the, the Torah, about God's way in the household. And there's this fascinating deal in Deuteronomy where it goes back and forth between the you mm-hmm. and the y'all. Right, right. And, it, and it seems like it's designed to be saying y'all will flourish or fall together. But y'all are also made up of yous who have responsibility for contributing right. to the y'all that will flourish or fall out together. And it know? goes all the way down to the Ten Commandments. If you think about law codes mm. that are written, if a man does X, then Y. Mm. And the Ten mm. Commandment is actually singular you, if you. Yes. Yeah. It's, yes. Um, so, yes. Fascinating. Okay. So, <laughs> I cut you off. You were getting ready to say something else fascinating. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> I think it was that bit about Deuteronomy. Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> you worked it in anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think, I think, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think this idea of, of structures is so helpful for us because we all know if we think about our lives that our society makes certain forms of behavior easier and certain forms of behavior more difficult, hmm. certain ways of thinking easier, certain ways of behavior more difficult. Um, there's a book on, uh, critical realism that I read recently that that was was Christian theologians looking at some of these ideas and talking again to use this language of smooth pathways. Mm. Right, there are smooth pathways in a society that that push us in one direction or another. That doesn't mean that they can't be resisted. Individuals can resist them, and often God's call is to resist them. But it would be foolish to ignore the way Scripture suggests structures and social systems and families and nations can embrace smooth pathways that are either towards flourishing and goodness Mm. or away. And this is why you get this inner, this is one angle, I think, on the idea of intergenerational sin in the Mm. text, right? Like, you know, in the, in the, um, in God's explanation of his character in Exodus, you get the reference to, you know, showing steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations, right? But 
um, bringing judgment on the sinner to the third and fourth generation. And scholars have pointed out, well, the third and fourth generation is probably the limit of what you'd have in a household. Right, right. It's the living generation. Yeah. It's the living house. And the household probably participated right. in that rebellion in a yeah. number of ways. But you also get this other idea in the histories where like generations past, you know, you get a, references to judgment for the sins, your sins and the sins of your fathers and mothers implicitly. Um, and there seems to be a solidarity with the ancestors sin mm-hmm. that Nehemiah and Daniel, for instance, repent of. It seems like they're, they're recognizing that we, we have sort of, um, been shaped in line with our ancestors' rebellion. Um, and, and so the idea of intergenerational confession is not arbitrary. It's not, it's not, it's not completely like there's this debt that our ancestors earned and that we have to pay off for no reason. There may be dynamics like that in places in, in the text. And I, I've written about some of those elsewhere. But, but one thing that seems to be going on here is that we tend to sin in the image of our neighbors and our ancestors. And that's just common sense, but it's also on the surface of the text. Yeah, there, there is a movie that I think explores this so beautifully, but most people won't watch the whole thing. Uh, Magnolia. I don't know if you've ever seen Magnolia, mm-hmm. but it's actually a very it's 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 rooted in Exodus uh, ten mm. um, or eight. Is it Exodus? Uh, I forget which. It's in the pl- it's in one of the plagues, and it explores this idea of the sins of the fathers using like eight different storylines that you're not sure how mm. they're connected, and then once you figure out how they're connected, you realize oh, it's these things these two dads did. Uh, you know, decades ago. It's brilliant. Um, okay. I think it's the only movie Tom Cruise ever acted in. Uh, he's, <laughs> he was really good in that movie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, in, in, I, you know, I do want to address the issue head on of this resistance to the idea that sin can be endemic and systematic mm. and, and widespread kind of like a cancer um, because I, I do find it ironic that uh, people of different political persuasions that, you know, they can, they can think very, you know, kind of like, well, I didn't do that. I didn't commit that crime. I didn't, you know, I'm not mm. culpable. My, you know, whatever. Um, and at the same, you know, say only a person can be held. And at the same time, they'll say, oh, you know, the whole government's corrupt. Like mm. <laughs> every, everything's wrong with it. You know, like you get a, the, there's a few bad apples that are ruining the whole thing. And you're like, well, yeah, well, that sounds a lot like systemic, uh, systemic yes. sin or systemic yes. violations there. So. So in some ways, I do feel that some people that resist what Scripture is doing with sin and how it gets it roots into entire systems and family groups and nations, um, that there, there's a kind of a false resistance or a failure to actually like reflect on your own uh, your mm. own views of of the systemist systematicity of sin. Yeah, and also, I mean, the, uh, uh, my friend Duke Kwan just contributed a sermon to a collection of books, a collection of essays that that are being gathered together in a volume. And he talked about how in our shared faith tradition, we often celebrate all the good things we've inherited, mm, you know, right. from our, our, our tradition. And then as soon as we start talking about some of the ugly stuff in our right. history, we become very individualist. Right. Let's, you know? not, let's not rehash the past, right? Everybody wants to and, tell you and, they're related to Thomas Jefferson, but then nobody wants to talk about what that means. <laughs> 
that's right. That's right. So exactly. So I think um, I, I, what I appreciate is is Duke there is not saying there's nothing good that we inherit. He's just saying we have to recognize that we're enmeshed in these mm-hmm. in these systems and 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 these these cultures. Um, and I, one thing, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few years, that the way the Bible talks about sin is extremely dynamic. And it's actually, mm. you know, um, if you think about how w- when you're a Christian, one thing that happens is that you discover ways that your faith makes better sense of more of the world mm-hmm. than other ways of thinking. Hopefully. You know, like what are the things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are the things that make you go, "Oh my goodness, this still makes sense." And one for me is Scripture's diverse, complex depiction of sin. Mm-hmm. So, like you think about Paul, um, Paul can describe sin as something we do. Mm-hmm. Like I committed a sin. You get that in Romans. Um, Paul can say. Uh, we are sinful. You get that in First Timothy. Like it's an identity, you know. It's not just something I did. It's something I habitually do. Mm. Um, but as a lot of theologians have pointed out, Paul also talks about sin with a capital S, like this hostile power. So right. sin can seek to rule, mm. right? In Romans six, and there's this idea that when and John talks about this as well, but he talks about in um, with. Uh, 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 the devil, you know, talks about the devil in ways that are similar to the way Paul talks about sin. And so you get this idea that there are these hostile enemies, sin and death, and they seek to rule us. And these spiritual powers have mastery over us outside of Jesus. And um, under their influence, we become people who habitually sin. Mm. And so that's why Paul in Romans 6 is keen to say, you even once sin is no longer your master, even even when you no longer have that overlord, you're still in danger of continuing to act like a sinner, offering your body as an instrument of unrighteousness, or or I like the translation as a weapon of injustice, because mm-hmm. you got used to that right. under the reign of sin. Now you've got to proactively seek to orient your body and your life towards the reign of Jesus and the reign of grace. That's just Paul, but but. I think that stuff goes all the way back. You know, you think about the very beginning of the story in Genesis, the first act of rebellion is a decision. Human beings who could obey choose not to. But the first time we actually hear the word sin is in right. the Cain and Abel right. story. Where he has the same discussion. Yes, exactly. And it's it's an agent. Sin is crouching at Cain's door, right. desiring him. And it's got to be mastered. So what is sin? Sin is something we do. It's an identity that we can acquire. It's something that gums up our structures and systems. It's a power. Which one is it? All of them. Mm. And that to me makes much better sense of the sins that I have seen in my life. Why do I commit an act of lust? Is it because I'm a lustful person? Yes. Is it because I succumb to a, a lustful temptation? Yes. Is it because I live in a society obsessed with sexual exploitation and and pornography? Yes. Is it because there is a hostile power at work that wants to steal, kill, and destroy? Yes. All at the same time. Yeah. And that's true of our economic life. That's true of our ethnic identities. Like, why do I have trouble um, treating racially other people? as loving them as myself, you know, Jesus calls to, is it because I sometimes make poor decisions? Yes. Is it because 
there's brokenness in my heart, racism in my heart. Sure. Is it because I live in a society where the way that black and brown people are portrayed in the media is often relentlessly negative, where there's horrible messaging about black and brown bodies all the time that I've absorbed through the pores of my skin? Yes. Is it because my upbringing was primarily segregated, right? Was that segregation driven by personal choices? Yes. Was it also driven by decisions in banking and zoning law? Mm. Yes. Is it because Satan hates humanity? Sure. All and at the same time, right? right? And so I think, man, when I think about the stuff that I or you could, I could do this with economics, poverty, you know, man, it's all these things. And that complexity that we discover in scripture helps us make sense of why when we confront massive issues in our lives, we're going, I'm responsible. We're responsible. There's a structure here. There's a spiritual battle and it's all those things. And that makes better sense than the ideologies on offer outside of the faith from my perspective, at least. Well, and within the faith, I think you'll find, traditions or personalities that want to reduce it to just one of those. Yes. Right. Yes, that's it's right. Like until we figure out this is a spiritual war, then nobody will do anything. You that's know? right. Uh, that's and, right. Or until we figure out everybody is individually responsible for what they do. Right. That's right. Um, and I think also, you know, just thinking through Paul now, um, the emphasis in like Colossians comes to my mind that all, 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 mm. all over all principalities, he's put them to yes. like, you know, it, he also yes. has this mentality of that. Anything that you think uh, can be solved through your prowess or <laughs> yes. power, it's all in Christ. So, and there's also that's right, Drew. And there's also this fascinating discussion in Paul scholarship about how when ancient readers would have heard things like principalities and mm. powers and lords mm. and rulers, they would not have had this neat and tidy distinction between the rulers that I can see who run. Colossi or Corinth right. or Philippi or Rome, and the spiritual, you know, Frank Peretti esque right. demons. They would have seen this world kind of, right. kind of, and so if they're if that's a, if that's true, and I think it is, then they're giving us language for understanding how our economic systems and our um, our social systems and our family systems mm. and our cultural systems are bound up in our collective individual decisions. They're bound up in our cultures and they're bound up in spiritual forces. You know, I used to always use the example when I was talking about this, you know, um, if you think of human beings like a house, you know, uh, my friend uh, Brian Ficker taught me that God created us to have healthy relationships with God, with ourselves, with other people and with the world around us. And I used to diagram that as a house, you know, the foundation mm. of the house is your life with God and that these pillars, right? But of course, you're not a house by yourself. You're in a neighborhood, mm. And everybody knows that home values rise or fall based on stuff that's going on in your neighborhood. And if your neighbor has like a meticulate lawn, you know, it's going to put some pressure on you to go out there and mow the lawn, right? Right. And if they have cars on blocks in the front yard, you're going to feel not so bad about how you – and so we we get this intuitively that we're part of these larger structures and systems, um, and we see it in scripture, I think. Yeah. Uh, and going back to that, you know, when we see a king who's oppressing, you know, there's a whole mm. cohort. Under the kind of, it takes a village to raise, uh, you know, an yes. oppressor, right? I, we see the same thing with the pastorate. Uh, you yes. Know, with um, uh, elder boards that kind of 
are suppressive or abusive. We, like it's never one person. There's always something that's right. supported in an organization. Which and, we, and sorry, go ahead. And we just should say um, it's easy to talk about this in terms of sin, but we we should always remember that the Bible is equally clear that the flourishing life works this way as right, well. Right. When the righteous flourish, the people rejoice in Proverbs. In right. Psalm 72, the good king influences the whole society. Right. Um, Paul talks about the faith that lives in Timothy that first began with his grandmother, mm-hmm. right? So so we're built for structures of goodness, right? right? Um, and so it's, it's, I think we have to constantly remind ourselves um, when we act like people are these kind of thick candy shell, nothing gets in. We are cutting ourselves off yeah. from life, you know, from goodness, from peace, from joy that we're designed for. From sanity. Um, or from sanity. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, um, so it's, 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 uh, we equally need to imagine from the Bible, oh, we've been liberated for the reign of grace. Hmm. And that means my decisions can change. That means my character can change. That means my Lord has changed. Um, and that means that the cultures that we create can be different. If you can't reconcile why Jesus says to the four, you know, to the the cripple, the, your four friends' faith has made you well, mm, <laughs> right? Mm. Oh, uh, that's so good. Yes. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, if you can't reconcile that, then I don't know what you're doing in the Bible. You're going to have to find some other place yeah. to play because it's not going to work for you. Yeah, um, that's right. I think this all, everybody, you know, people can yes and amen this all day long and they can go, oh yeah, okay, that's what's going on in scripture. Until you touch their money or, you know, their their <laughs> political structures, right? Uh, mm. How things are run, what the government, can, especially in America, we we have such a deep sense of ownership in everything that happens politically, be, because technically we, you know, the voter runs the country. Um, and so, right. um, so I, I think a lot of what you're saying makes sense, um, but people are going to hear lots of different legal theories, yes. political theories, economic theories about what we should then do, um, and then yeah. some of them they would just flat out disagree with, right? Right. Um, and I think of the the typical one is, you know, people go like, well, in Acts 242, they sold all their possessions and had everything in common. Therefore, socialism, you know, like yeah, 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 yeah. Europe is right about everything uh, or, yeah. <laughs> or Scandinavia is at the very least. Uh, yeah. So what do you do with those people that kind of jump from this general theology of um, systems and flourishing that we've been talking about to straight to a particular output? So I'm going to resist the urge to try to address the like very practical questions first, at least, and try to offer kind of some uh, meta uh, sort of observations. Um, Because I think where, where I see this the most is with, cause, cause I've done a lot of work on the Bible and economic life and the Bible and race. And so the two things I get um, historically have been, Oh, this is socialism or whatever. Um, on the one hand, or a new one now is this is all critical race theory. Mm. And the, the, you can just stop and ask them to define that. Right. Right. (laughs) But avoiding that, staying out of that, right. Avoiding that. Let's take those at face value. Right. Right. Um, the argument seems to be at heart, the idea seems to be you've brought this alien philosophy 
to the text. You've brought a tool for understanding life that you got somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you brought that to Christian ethics or reading of scripture, and that's problematic. And I think the first point to be made is all of us depend on tools for understanding scripture and the world around us that do not come directly from scripture. All of us depend on tools for understanding scripture and the world around us that cannot be read straight off the page in Mm -hmm. scripture. So for instance... If you have a Bible in your hands, it is based on people who did translation work, who made decisions when they compared two different manuscripts of the of Romans and said, which one do we think is more likely to be original? That kind of work depends on theory about how language works, mm-hmm. on how archaeology works, on how history works that are not in scripture. So you don't have a Bible – Without people using tools, they cannot get directly from Scripture. If you use the word Trinity or mission or omnipotent, you you are using tools that Christians reached for that were not directly in Scripture. And then they they said, does this work? Does this fit? And so – and the danger, the genuine danger is that those tools bring things that are unbiblical or Mm -hmm. anti-God to the work, and they corrupt our reading of scripture or reality. That is a genuine danger. It is just not an avoidable danger. It's the kind of danger that you face when you buckle your seatbelt, right? You can buckle your seatbelt, but if you're going to get across town, you're going to have to drive the car, which means taking the risk of being on the road. And so throughout Christian history, you know, the question with Augustine, who's had massive influence, did he get too much of his stuff from Plato? Did Aquinas yes. get too oh, much sorry. of his Were stuff from Aristotle? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> but, but for our readers who aren't convinced, right, in every right. case, that's, that's the debate, right? That's the debate. Yeah. So um, what pretending we don't need to think about economic theory or political theory or racial theory. When you act like we can just do without all that, what you're committing to is a naive individualistic uh, neutered version of the text. So Isaiah says, woe to you who add house to house, field to field until you have no neighbors. That's awesome. But how are they doing that? Right. Were they adding house? Was it legal to do that? What was the significance of a field? Was that field, how was that field uh, enmeshed in their political society? If you want to know those things, you're going to have to go beyond the bare words of scripture and talk about archaeology, about history, about economic theory. And everybody does this. They do do it, right? They either go to the text and what they see will be affected by the kind of economic theory. Um If you hear Paul saying uh, in the church, God has arranged the body so to give greater honor inside the church to the parts that lack it outside the church. Paul describes the less honor in Corinth that's being given to those who are foolish, they're not well born, they're the weak in the world's eyes. But what do those words mean? And what is honor and why does it matter to understand that? You're going to have to get into, well, what do we think the society and economy was like in Corinth? And if you want your church to be shaped by that, you're going to have to go, 
how are people dishonored in our society? Mm-hmm. And if you want to move past, as Paul clearly does, the form of dishonoring that's like spitting in someone's face, you're going to have to go, well, does our economic system dishonor certain people in ways that are problematic? Does Do we dishonor certain ethnic groups in ways that are problematic? You're going to have to ask those questions and you're going to have to pick up tools and theories and ideas that are not directly readable off the page of scripture. And so what you need to do is critically engage those tools, Mm -hmm. right? Let the Bible talk back to them. Let the Bible critique. The Bible remains the authority, but we, we, but we have to have tools to use it. So we bring the tools and then we allow scripture to talk back to them. We have to have tools for living the text in our world. So we bring the tools, but we let the Bible talk back to them. And so, um, in my reading, I know this is a long answer, no, but in good. my reading, in my reading of economic life, when you pick up somebody who is explicitly Marxist or implicitly Marxist leaning, they've got this worldview that says, uh, uh, class is the main thing mm-hmm. and the, the more powerful class exploits the lower class. And that's usually what's going on. And I'm not the first person to, to say this, but that's sort of like um, the only tool in their toolbox right. is class exploitation. But you know what? If the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, um, but at the same time, sometimes you need a hammer to bang down a nail. Right. So people with that lens have helped us see the way that, man, in the background of Israel's life, people were being exploited. They were being given predatory debt in order to seize their fields. And they were doing that caught up in this political system where there was incentives, not just from kings, but from imperial powers through the tribute system to push them in that direction. And you start going like, oh man, when Job talks about how the landless poor are treading out the grapes while they're thirsty, uh, uh, People who've thought a lot about class exploitation can help you see some stuff there that you might miss. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, really thoroughgoing Marxist readings have a hard time imagining anything but class struggle. Right. So when they see the laws about debt forgiveness, they tend to go, how is this debt forgiveness actually helping the powerful lender rather than the needy borrower? And at that point, I want to say, hey, I think your, your tool – is not helpful for this hmm. at this point. But the, the the people who are soaked in a more capitalist reading have the exact same problem in reverse. They tend to read uh, these ancient texts as if they're all in a free market economy. And they weren't. Right. They just weren't. That's not the world that they lived in. That's not the way these, these things worked. And so heavily capitalist-leaning readings run into the same problem in reverse. And so you, you, you kind of... My my fear is either like when we go, oh, that's critical race theory or like, oh, that's Marxism or oh, that's capitalism or whatever. Um, we're either being naive, like pretending we don't all need tools to understand the text and to figure out how to live it out. Uh, or it's actually bad faith. We're actually yeah. not legitimately engaging scripture yeah. or our own world. And either way, the people of God don't get down the road. And so my desire is that people would bring their tools to light. They would say, you know what? I actually think this kind of an economic way of life makes more sense to me for these reasons. 
let's let's see how that stands up to scripture and in conversation with others who disagree and see, you know, have a more honest conversation. Hmm. Um, we know the Bible calls us to care for the poor. We don't know all the exact ways they were exploited, and it would help us to know and to think about how they might have been exploited. We know that God calls us to care for the poor today, and that's going to require more than Deuteronomy. I hate that it does because I love Deuteronomy, but it does. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out how we have more intelligible, honest conversations about that. And when we do, we're going to find like assumptions that just don't make sense. Like the Marxist assumption that there is nothing beyond class struggle, that the idea of solidarity across classes is, is elusive. The Bible doesn't see the world that way. It, it sees genuine love and affection across lines of class. Mm. So that needs to challenge the way we think about the world. Conversely, the idea that I have autonomy over my stuff, and that's a really good, important value, the Bible checks that kind of hyper-capitalist assumption right. all Everywhere. over yeah. the place. Yeah. All over the place, you know? Um, so I pause there because I've just been rambling on, but but I think this is really important. Well, I think one final question: you can give a one-word answer. Uh, are you going to vote for uh, Cornell West for president? <laughs> I, uh, I I love uh, I, I quote Cornell West all the time, um, and I'll use your question to answer the question that I want to ask. Um, <laughs> Uh, I quote Cornel West all the time because he's got this great line that justice is what love looks like in public, not just an abstract uh, abstract concept to regulate our institutions, mm. but a fire on our bones to promote the well-being of all. Mm. And if you look and, – and John Golden Gay, the Old Testament scholar, quite similarly says, um, justice and righteousness are about the faithful exercise of power in community. So one thing I would say in all of this, if you look at the just the Old Testament, you can say, what does it look like to exercise power faithfully in community? You know, in the land pre-king, it involves villagers lending lending freely, forgiving debts, returning land in the jubilee year. Uh, under the uh, under Josiah, you know, in the monarchy, the ideal vision of the king. Uh, what does justice and righteousness look like? It looks like taking care of the poor through royal uh, uh, acts, right. um, and it and it looks like uh, just laws in the courtroom and and the faithful exercise of power. When you get to Daniel, when Daniel's been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, who is a complete jerk, and Babylon society is the opposite of God's vision for the world, and they are a powerless minority. What does Daniel in chapter four spend his time telling Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, break off your sins by doing righteousness for the oppressed. Mm. So he's promoting the faithful exercise of power in a third sort of political economy. So the the, the ideals of scripture in, in that little thing that I just did there are being contextualized in different political contexts, different economic contexts, different cultural contexts, creatively, thoughtfully. That's where we want to see God's people moving, inspired by the church. So I have no idea who I'm going to vote for, um, but I do know I'm going to keep quoting West on that line because <laughs> I think it's really helpful for thinking about how we can love God and neighbor in a variety of different um, socio-political economies and circumstances. And it sounds like you're saying the need for skilled improvisation of these principles in all the yes. different places we find ourselves is, yes. is really of uh, paramount importance. 
Yes. So we've got to think of, so if I can just say this, cause I think it's so important. I think the church should be a place, for instance, faith community should be a place where what I take to be the authoritative word of God is announced and the values and way of thinking and way of living, the paradigm, paradigmatic depictions of God's kingdom are announced in the sort of thus saith the Lord space. And cultural idols will be confronted in that space. You know, um, the way that we think about orphans and widows and immigrants, the way we think about our bodies and human sexuality, the way that we think about family and who's living soul will be challenged, right? At a heart deep level. And that doesn't happen as often as it should mm-hmm. in faith communities. But even when that happens, we often assume that if we kind of know where we're going, we understand those paradigmatic expressions of God's kingdom, that we've solved all the questions about how to get there. And actually, I think scripture gives us enormous freedom for arguing about how to get where we want to go. And even when faith communities do that first thing, the second thing we got to do is like get together. You know, you move out of the pulpit, the thus saith the Lord, to what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us mm-hmm. in the way that we vote, march, buy houses or don't, organize businesses that we have influence in, think about the immigrants in our own backyard, train our kids to think about sex and what does that mean for how we engage public spaces with quite different views. So then we've got to get in the hard work of working it out. Mm-hmm. And that is going to require wisdom. And to use your word, which I love, improvisation, it's going to involve critical reflection on ideas that are not read straight off the page of scripture. And if we don't do that work, we're not going to make any progress. Or we're going to be enslaved to the ideas that we're not being honest we already are owned by. Right. And and I think that's that's genuinely getting in the way of, of, of faith communities doing what I think God calls us to. It is amazing that scripture doesn't leave us with a bunch of ideologies, but actually it hands us over this demand for, for skill and wisdom and says, go for it. Mm, <laughs> I mean, it's mm, yes. very risky on God's part. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sort it out. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Michael Rhodes, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom on this topic. Thanks, Drew. Good to be with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.